Welcome to the Managing the Future of Work podcast from Harvard Business School. I'm your host, Bill Kerr. This episode is one of a series of special dispatches on the sweeping effect that COVID-19 is having on society, the economy, and the future of work. In addition to our regular podcast episodes, we'll be bringing you interviews with business leaders, policymakers, and leading scholars on the coronavirus. COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement have forced a reckoning with America's legacy of systemic racism. What does the present moment mean for the push for equality in the workplace? Laura Morgan Roberts is an expert on organizational psychology. Her research spans workplace diversity and the maximizing of human potential. In her work, she emphasizes, quote, personal and professional alignment. Professor Roberts, who teaches at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, is co-editor of the recent book, Race, Work, and Leadership, New Perspectives on the Black Experience. With co-author Anthony Mayo, she wrote a November 2019 Harvard Business Review article analyzing the state of opportunity for African-Americans. They concluded, quote, race continues to be a major barrier to advancement in the U.S. workplace. We are far from realizing the principles of equal opportunity and meritocracy. Laura joins me today to discuss the ongoing crisis and the prospects for systemic change. What policy and management strategies can narrow the gap between ideals and reality? Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. Laura, uh, let's maybe get started with tell us a little bit about yourself. Your professional practice and scholarship cover a, a lot of topics related to diversity. So how did you get involved in this area? And then maybe give us a couple of projects you're working on right now. I've been interested in this area uh, for 25 years, actually. Um, it dates back to my undergraduate studies at our alma mater, University of Virginia. Uh, when I first became intrigued in organizational psychology, um, how people could cultivate a career path that would be fulfilling and generative for them, uh, how they could pursue work that was aligned with their strengths and their values and their desire to maximize their human potential. Um, I came to those questions also with the understanding of structural inequality and structural advantage. And uh, that was really shaped by my childhood experiences growing up in Gary, Indiana, which is a steel town, former steel town, really, outside of Chicago, Illinois. And um, in that environment, it was really clear uh, how the kinds of opportunities were shaped by the local economy um, and how many of my classmates had to work that much harder to be able to pursue their dreams and, um, you know, take on college paths as well as career paths that would be fulfilling for them. I, on the other hand, uh, though also grew up in Gary, Indiana and attended public schools, um, grew up in a family with a father who's an orthopedic surgeon. A mother was a former high school math teacher. They've had multiple graduate degrees, as did my grandparents and even a couple of my great grandparents. And so, I, you know, even through this lens of um, my own set of questions and experiences around race and around the economy, I could see the importance of those structural advantages and um, structural inequality. And so I, I just wanted to be able to speak to individuals to help them have more tools and resources to navigate their path. Um, but I also wanted to be able to speak to leaders so that they could design systems that would allow more people to truly be able to bring their best selves to work and make their best selves even better through the growth and learning that we all get in our work experiences. Um, and then most importantly, to um, be able to bring out the best in others. It's a very powerful sort of personal background. And for our listeners, we both graduated from the University of Virginia in the same year. We won't say the year on, on the podcast uh, live <laughs> here. Uh, Laura, it's late June 2020 as we're recording this, and we're in the midst of very sustained and global protests over police bias and violence, as well as also more generally racial inequalities. What do you make of this movement and what are you hoping might result from it? Well, it's a, a prescient moment um, in some ways. I think it's a call to consciousness. Um, 
maybe for some that's a wake up call, um, you know, and, and, and maybe a loud alarm. I think what we have the opportunity to do is to learn from the experiences that we're seeing and hearing uh, that were catalyzed by these racial protests and uh, start to tune in more intensely, you know, turn up the volume, try to listen more, try to understand more. Um, Don't tune out when it gets tough and, and challenging and difficult. So that's the second part of your question, right? What do I make of this moment? It's the call of consciousness where people are tuning in. What am I hoping might result is that, you know, as we roll up our sleeves and really start to do the hard work of creating more just and equitable uh, workplaces that embody thriving and flourishing in all forms, um, that we'll do that while remaining tuned in to race and racism and inequity so we can identify it when it shows up and we can um, eradicate it by holding people and systems accountable for their behavior um, or their, um, you know, even the, even the, the pro- not just the personal behavior, but also some of the policies and the practices that uh, have been built on this system of inequity. That might be a small hope, just don't tune out. Um, but I think it's what's going to sustain our momentum going forward. You know, it's that ability to stay vigilant, um, stay tuned in. We're talking about some issues and challenges that have plagued our world for uh, nearly 500 years at this point. It's not going to change overnight. Yeah, progress will certainly have to go well beyond acknowledgement of this issue. And we appreciate you walking through uh, that that sort of making sure people stay on that channel and, and make progress towards it. This is coming during also the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which has proven to be uh, three times more lethal for Black Americans than for white Americans. How connected is this to the pandemic? Uh, and what has that revealed to us about inequality in America? Yeah, Bill, you know, COVID-19 has been devastating for everyone. Um, And the differential impact of COVID-19 on Black and Brown communities is um, definitely gives us cause to pause and reevaluate the structure of our society. Why is it that African-Americans are so vulnerable in the face of a global pandemic. You know, this is the, in the in the um, the early announcements, right? The public service announcements and the recommendations around COVID nineteen. We were hearing the phrase, you know, we're all at risk and we all have to take precautions. COVID nineteen does not discriminate. You know, anybody can catch COVID nineteen. That's true, but we've also learned there's a yes and. Some people are more vulnerable than others. And why is that? Part of it is due to exposure. Part of it is due to lack of protective barriers. So when we look at, in our conversation, um, the context of work, we have to call attention to occupational uh, representation and the disproportionate number of women of color in particular, um, but also men of color, who take up low-wage occupations and who were called essential workers, the cashiers, the nursing assistants, the cleaning, you know, janitorial staffs, the transportation drivers, you know, all of those people who still remained in the direct line of sight with COVID-19 so that our economy could keep moving to the extent that it did and so that individuals could continue to get access to whatever care that they needed while we attempted to fight off or curb the spread, really, um, of COVID-19. I do see more um, productive or constructive engagement on these issues with respect to naming race. Um, When we started this year, 2020, uh, we were still at a point where you would talk about race in code in organizations, even if you were talking more broadly about diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives, you would talk about 
DEI. You might say, quote unquote, diverse talent. You might say unconscious bias. You would talk about belonging, you know, the importance of belonging, but not really hit the nail on the head squarely when it came to the conversation about race, uh, racism, and the unique sets of challenges that Black people face in today's work environment. So I think it is constructive because it's an important starting place for us to name race and talk about race explicitly. But it's only a beginning, right? Um, (laughs) It's one thing to acknowledge it, one thing to put up a hashtag that says Black Lives Matter, um, or that says we stand with George Floyd's family members and our heart goes out to his family. We stand against the injustice that happens you know, in our streets, but it's quite another thing to say, we're going to now hold ourselves accountable as individuals and as a system to act in more just, equitable and inclusive ways, especially when black people are concerned. Uh, So I think that's the next step. I'm excited to see the, the forward movement. And as they say, the proof will be in the pudding. When we look uh, six months down the road, 12 months down the road, five years down the road to see how these commitments were pledged commitments were operationalized and if they've truly transformed some of the power dynamics um, that we see within our organizations and communities. Yeah, beyond just naming the issue, you've worked on and developed uh, techniques to help business managers and leaders uh, approach these vital topics and kind of take that next step. Tell us a little bit about the reflected best self exercise and some of the similar techniques that that you advocate for people that are trying to to move that next uh, that next step. Yeah, well, the reflected best self exercise uh, is guided by the principles of positive organizational scholarship, which is a desire to examine the system, discover the pockets of goodness within the system, uh, identify those best practices when systems are operating from a position of strength, and then realize how you can learn from those strengths? How can we utilize those strengths more effectively going forward? Um, And so the Reflect the Best Self exercise and other tools for cultivating and sustaining positive identities are really important right now when we're taking up the difficult work of advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion in our organizations. And here's why. First, when we, ha- when we identify the barriers to diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, so- a-, a lot of them are structural, right? As we've talked about earlier, you know, a lot of them have to do with people being vulnerable, um, having limited opportunities of advancement because of their geography, because of their occupations, because of educational inequality, because of a lack of decent health care, you know, a- all of those. Um, barriers can make it more difficult and challenging in organizations. But when we reach these moments um, where we say, we actually want to do something differently, you know, we want to change, we want to move in a positive direction, there are another set of barriers that hinder us from making that forward movement. And those barriers are often related to our own insecurity, identity threat, and ego defensive routines. So Our insecurity comes in the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations when we say, wait a minute, if I acknowledge structural inequality, then I might have to unravel some of my long-held beliefs about meritocracy. And, And that's a strong belief, a strong narrative, especially in the United States of America, that People endured over generations endured 
hardship and struggle to build a company, uh, to build a country and also to build companies. And so your success is a function of your hard work. And we define merit as the product of individual effort and hard work. So I become then destabilized in my own belief of legitimacy and worth when someone tells me, well, you know, Laura, the fact that your father is an orthopedic surgeon, that kind of gave you a hand up in life. And the fact that your grandparents had college educations, as did a couple of your great grandparents, you know, that too gave you a hand up as you were navigating the educational system. Then I can become ego defensive and say, well, wait a minute. No, that's not true. I worked hard for everything I had. I worked really, how dare you challenge me and say that I didn't work hard? That's not what the insight on structural equality is telling, inequality is telling you, or structural advantage is telling you, but that's how we internalize it. It's you're saying that something's wrong with me, that I'm inadequate. And then we start having these conversations about how racism plays out on a day-to-day basis and people become even more insecure or threatened or ego defensive. Wait a minute, I'm not racist. So therefore, how could I have said something that a person of another race would have found demeaning or devaluing in that way? What the Reflective Best Self exercise does and other positive identity tools is help people to anchor themselves in a more positive or secure base of self-worth. So then they can do the difficult work of challenging their belief system and creating a more just and open society. In other words, it helps to counteract or break down some of those ego defensive routines because it gives people the validation and the affirmation that they need to see how they do add value and make important contributions in the world. You know, despite what people may say um, about, you know, whether they like applause or like to be celebrated publicly or quietly, you know, there's a range (laughs) where people fall on that continuum. But the Reflected Best Self exercise allows everybody on that continuum the opportunity to think about how they have added value and how um, how that has positively impacted others. And I should mention, I'm sorry, I did not even explain what happens with the Reflective Best Self exercise. I'm talking about what it does and what it undoes, but let me just say for a minute how it works. The way that an exercise, um, the Reflective Best Self exercise works is that people will reach out to their friends family, and then of course their professional contacts, past and present, and ask for contribution stories. So those people will share with them, people in your life will share with you stories about times when they saw you at your best, adding value and making important contributions. And so then when you read this collection of stories that you've gathered, you have a deeper understanding of why and how you matter to the people who matter most to you in your life. So it's a connecting and affirming experience. It also helps you to become more intelligent and wise about how you can use your strengths and how you can show up in the future. So you can imagine then the kind of validation that you get from that experience and why it would be important to be centered in that way, you know, before you try to tackle some of the more disruptive belief systems about equality and inequality, merit, you know, equity, inequity, justice, uh, racism, and, and so forth. Laura, that reflection is very powerful, and it's happening at the organizational level uh, as well as also the individual level. Business schools, uh, including Harvard, have received uh, renewed criticism about their record on race. For academics in, in particular, in academia, what can we do to support and provide opportunities for minority students, uh, staff, and also faculty? Well, Bill, you know that I started my faculty career at Harvard Business School. I was 27 years old, uh, African-American woman, five foot two inches on a good day. <laughs> And there I was in the middle of the pit 
teaching the required course in leadership called LEAD to MBA students, 90 of them staring at me in this amphitheater style experience. And I don't have to articulate some of the things that came out of their mouths during those classes or in the course evals to follow. But suffice it to say, I was not who many of them expected to greet on their first day of class when they were meeting their leadership professor. And so that experience of kind of disruption to the Harvard stereotype was something that I carried with me in and out of the classroom. Bill, I carried it on airplanes. People would ask, oh, what are you doing? Are you a student? I would say, no, I'm a professor. They say, where do you teach? And then I would have a churning in my stomach. Like, do I even tell them or do I just lie? It almost got to the point where I just wanted to lie because I knew I would get the gaze, the gaping mouth and the wide eyes. And it would really tell me what's that like? And it's not because they were so fascinated with Harvard itself, uh, though many people are, but it was this contradiction between what they expected to see or who they, what all of the different attributes that they associated with Harvard and then what I was embodying sitting next to them on that airplane. So in the years that's passed, you know, now on faculty at UVA Darden, but I've returned to HBS over the years uh, for different teaching engagements and also as a research scholar. And one of the projects that motivated the article Tony Mayo and I wrote, um, as well as the book that we just published, Race, Work, and Leadership, New Perspectives on the Black Experience, uh, was HBS's decision leading up to 2018 to commemorate the founding of the, the African American Student Union, ASU. It was the 50th anniversary of ASU, so from 1968 to 2018. Uh, my colleagues and I examined the history of African Americans at Harvard Business School. Black, of black people, not just African-Americans at Harvard Business School. And then we also started to examine how their careers unfolded afterwards. So what did we learn in terms of what business schools can do to support and provide opportunities to those students, to faculty, like me, we're junior faculty at the time, still business school faculty member, and also staff. Well, here's where it gets really tricky, Bill. So one of the things that we've saw consistently is that business schools are really, really bad when it comes to doing the hard work around race. Race is often considered irrelevant, superfluous, or optional or ancillary to a business curriculum. I find this ironic, given the fact that race was fundamentally embedded in the infrastructure of the society and the origins of many of the management practices that are put in place today, as well as the economic foundation of the, um, the business owners who started major enterprises in the 19th and 20th centuries. So to not talk about race seems to be um, a dangerous omission in basic economics, <laughs> that there's not just a blank slate of supply and demand, but there's generational wealth and there are ways in which it's as crude and was invested and there are a set of practices, um, some of which were highly unethical, that generated tremendous wealth. But that's taboo, Bill. That's the unspeakable. I can say that to you today because this is our topic of conversation, but that would be a taboo conversation in the classroom. Um, but let's, you know, back it up a little bit, even if we weren't going that deeply into it, what students don't see in their business school experiences is the positive associations between Black people and business success. So they don't see enough by way of examples of black business leaders or black businesses in their curricula. They don't see enough black tenured professors or even tenured track professors in their business school experiences to be able to make those positive associations. 
that counteract many of the stereotypes that people have about race and about business. Um, and then they don't experience the climate as one that's really open to learning and changing in ways that would allow it to be more inclusive. The emphasis on networking in business schools is palpable and people are concerned about job placement, yes, but they're also concerned about building and maintaining that network, especially when they're at these top ranked business schools. So they fear saying or doing things that would marginalize or isolate them. And that often means that they stay silent around issues of sexism, um, anti-immigration sentiment, uh, the uh, labor exploitation conversations or comments about low-wage workers uh, that often come out in classroom discussions. And of course, pertinent to our topic today, racial stereotypes. They go unchecked. And people often bear that burden silently because they don't feel like they have the support of the community, you know, and the system to speak out about these kinds of experiences. Um, and nor do they feel that their classmates or their professors really will be held accountable for it. Yeah, Harvard certainly has a, a ways to go. As we record this, we are both acknowledging the shortcomings over the last uh, 50, 100 years, and also at many of the unit levels making public commitments about how we can make sure we have a, you know, black uh, protagonists in more of our cases, uh, really highlight many of the issues that, that you're describing there. We've got, we've got a ways to go. Let, let's, let me continue on your book that you, you brought up, which was done with Anthony Mayo and David Thomas, both of whom one's current one passed uh, at HBS. Um, you present a lot of scholarship and best practices on race in the workplace. Uh, what are some of the key takeaways around that? And what are you trying to push in, in the scholarly realm? Well, we're so grateful for the contributors to this edited volume. The edited volume has over 30 chapters that were written by over 50 thought leaders. Um, some of them have been doing this work on race, work and leadership for a good 40 years. You know, and then others are uh, doctoral students, right? Very early in their career. So we had a nice range of voices and perspectives. We were able to cover some of that history around uh, uh, racial activism and how that affects the way that we think about and teach leadership. And then we were also able to end the book with a call to action uh, for engaging millennials and generations that follow, I guess, Gen Z, um, in doing this work too. Uh, so we definitely see it as a multi-generational, uh, multi-sector issue. Uh, we've got voices from folks coming out of healthcare, uh, the legal field, financial services, education, and community activists. Um, and in all of those different voices across generations and across sectors, we do hear some common refrains, Bill. And that's, you know, maybe the, the most poignant issue at hand. How can you issue an open call for a volume like this, ask people to submit their interesting work, and you bring it all together and you just find that common refrain of validation of the experience, but it's sobering. Um, in that validation. So that's one of the key takeaways, that there are sets of shared experiences around a Black experience that transcend these different aspects. And a couple of highlights of those are one, lack of access to career paths um, and, and not being encouraged or being actively discouraged from career ambition you know, in multiple sectors. It's just shocking. It's, it's, it's shocking to hear Michelle Obama say that she was discouraged uh, by her high school guidance counselor in going to Princeton. Um, in, I've heard and uh, reading different other black professionals talking this, um, this month, June 2020, about their experiences with racism in academia 
some are professors, but others are, you know, other professions, and talking about how they were actively discouraged from suing, uh, pursuing these paths. So access is a big issue. That's the first A. The second is authenticity. That's the second A. That's a big issue too. So black professionals feel that um, in order to be accepted in their organizations, in order to advance in their careers, they have to uh, be less authentic at work. They, particularly when it comes to expressing their racial identity um, or their underlying values that go along with it. Uh, the third is authority. Um, and their experience that once they get into the position of leadership, they beat the odds, they get the access, they find their own path to be authentic and be agile so they can get to that top level of the C-suite, their authority is still contested, even in that. They get a lot of pushback. There's a lot of second guessing. There's a, a lot of sort of going around in circles multiple times in order to get something done when their non-Black counterparts, especially white men, are able to just kind of put forth the request or you know issue the set of expectations and people are much more willing to comply. So those are three of the big challenges that we found existed. And then there are a set of chapters that speak to what organizations can and should do to meet those challenges. Um, they talk about uh, Martin Davidson and Valley Purdy Greenaway talk about designing race, intelligent inclusion programs, you know, not one size fits all diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, but designing um, learning experiences and candid, authentic forums where people can truly confront the unique elements of the Black experience in the organization and, you know, develop some strategies so that people can feel more authentic, they can feel more successful, I mean, um, more encouraged and more supported in their ambition and that their, their leadership authority will be respected. Um, there are other mechanisms that help as well, right? Mentorship is really important. Uh, sponsorship is important too. Like having people throw your name in the hat when you aren't even in the room and you don't even know that you're being considered for the position is huge. Um, and um, just the opportunity to Feel that you're making progress, you're growing, you're developing, you're advancing. So even though things won't be easy and the path can be rocky, you've got that level of resilience and that robust sense of self we talked about earlier that helps you to continue to persist. Um, and that was really important for the giving kind of parting words to Black professionals. Like, don't give up, right? Stay the course. Um, continue seeking out that, that support and drawing upon your best self in order to advance and move forward. We're hoping that it inspires more research on the topic. We're excited about the research that we were able to compile in this volume, but Bill, there's so many other studies that um, people have conducted and they haven't been able to get published because journal editors who are professors in the academy push back when they get these papers and say, well, if this is just a study of black people, then I don't think it's relevant or I don't think it's impactful enough for our field. So I don't think it, it belongs in this particular journal. And um, we, so we're losing the opportunities to really learn about some of these experiences because of the biases that are built into the publishing systems as well. So David, Tony, and I were really hoping that this would inspire scholars, but it would also inspire publishers to see that there is a market here and editors can be a little less cautious and a little more enthusiastic about entering into this space and supporting the authors who are doing this work. I also really hope that your book catalyzes more and maybe I can provide just a, a bit of context from the economics profession that I'm a part of. In response to COVID, in many ways, the, the discipline has done 
you know, somersaults backwards uh, and produced hundreds of, you know, new economic studies about COVID and its consequences and um, ways to approach it and so forth. And it's been commented that if we were to provide similar levels of attention to the Black Lives Matter movement and racial injustice and so forth, we would make a massive shift in our understanding of the issues and the policies that we can help people think through and so forth. Uh, and we just has an, as a as a profession need to adopt that and make that important. So I appreciate you uh, leadership in, in the book, Race, Work and, uh, and Leadership. That's such a great example, Bill. Thanks for calling attention to that. Um, you know, I, I do think these moments in history when we are confronted with wicked problems, you know, should be the catalyst for a host of scientists to try to take up these questions in informed and responsible ways. And we're hoping to see just that. Um, and there's still some barriers there. There's a stigma, Bill. Um, it's probably a little different than publishing around COVID, but doing the work as a consultant or a speaker, or a teacher, or definitely as a scientist on race means that you're having to make a bet and you're betting that you can be successful enough in this work to override the stigma that comes along with doing it. Some people say it's not rigorous enough. It's just based on your opinion or your own agenda. You know, they politicize it rather than viewing it as science. And then that undermines the scholars who are trying to do this work, especially the junior level scholars who are trying to get tenure. You know, cross-reference uh, one of our, our colleagues, Lisa Cook, who did some amazing work about the innovation of African-Americans. And uh, there's a Planet Money podcast for those that are listening to this podcast that you could hear more about both Lisa's amazing findings, but then also the challenges that she encountered in, in publishing the work and educating the profession uh, about that. Laura, let, let me turn and ask as we kind of come towards the end of this podcast for just, you know, like your 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 basic kind of reactions of here's something you can do, something some way to get going. We've talked about the reflected best self exercise and so forth. But a lot of our listeners are going to be uh, in professional business organizations. What's a way that they can really kind of get the senior management to acknowledge the systemic bias and, and engage really in that open-minded way? What, what's a technique that can open up a door that uh, has been closed up until now? Yeah. So first is that, that piece about centering yourself, you know, preparing your heart and your mind to do the work. And that's where the reflective best self comes in. Then we move into a three-part framework that was included in an article that I recently published with Ella Washington in the Harvard Business School about U.S. business, I mean, um, in the Harvard Business Review about U.S. businesses taking a meaningful stance against racism. And so that three-part framework involved uh, first acknowledging you know, so doing an audit of your organization's practices with respect to race and the representation of people at various levels in your organization and what that tells you by way of race and power <clears throat> and how it's distributed within your organization. Acknowledge, acknowledge, acknowledge using some data, using some statistics and facts. Also affirm so acknowledging the harm that has been done, the inequity that may be present, but then affirm the right to personhood and dignity and humanity. That's what Black Lives Matter is. It's the call for uh, the right to personhood, dignity, and humanity, for a life to be valued, to be cherished, um, to matter. And so that has to be signaled and communicated in the ways that we talk within each other, with we interact with one another, um, when you're trying to learn more about race and racism in your organization, um, you listen and you listen to people's stories and you don't, you resist that temptation to jump in as the devil's advocate and say, well, are you sure that's what happened? Could there be, could there have been an alternate explanation? You know, chances are the story this person is telling you, they have played over and over and over in their head a million times and tried to find a way to tell that story so that it wasn't about race. 
because that would be a lot more comfortable for that individual. You know, it's not easy to have brown skin and then have to confront the reality that that happened because you had brown skin. Some people think it's a cop-out excuse. It's actually, it's quite the opposite because that's, that's not mutable. That's not something that you can change. If I can make it about something I did, then I can prevent it from happening in the future, right? But if it's something that has to do with an immutable characteristic like my skin color, well, gee, you know, that's really hard for me to have to sit with. So affirm is really important in the way that you listen and engage in these conversations. Then we get to act. I know there's a bias to act. People want to feel like they can do something. They should be doing something. We all should be doing something. What can I donate to? What can I change? But you can't act if you're not informed by the data. So sometimes your action is to start gathering that data, listening to the stories, begin your lifelong process of learning, and then come up with an agenda that speaks to your role in the broader society. You know, what will you do outside of the walls of the enterprise to affect change, you know, socially? And we've seen a lot of examples of that right? Uh, where corporate leaders are making donations, have made don- big, you know, multi-million dollar donations to support Black-owned businesses, um, Black colleges and universities and the like. Um, but then there's the internal work. How are you going to change your talent management practices so that they are not subjected to racial bias and stereotyping? Um, how are you going to Look at your performance evaluation, for instance. Um, you know, in our environment and in academia, it's well documented that student evaluations are racially and gender biased. And yet, we still use them um, almost religiously to identify who the best teachers are within the school um, and reward people for such um, to make hiring decisions based on what someone's portfolio of teaching evals may look like, um, and then make leadership promotions also based on people's reputations in that respect. So that's just one example of changing some of the performance management systems and reward systems so that uh, those biases cannot undermine certain people's careers and elevate other people's careers. Um, but, But there are a range of others. Recruitment is also huge. Um, trying to understand how to get a concentration or a higher concentration of black and brown people at entry levels to then be reflected in the most senior levels of the organization is probably the biggest hurdle that most organizations still will have to cross. Do you have any best practices on on that particular hurdle, Larks? I know many people are going to be trying to think, what can I do to improve the recruitment and hiring? Right. That, that really, um, you know, that, so you have to set targets, you have to set quantifiable targets. And I know this makes people very uncomfortable, Bill, um, because as you get to the more senior levels in the organization, it does turn into more of a zero sum game. Uh, you can only have one CEO. At this point, there are three black CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies. That is much less than the representation of black people in the U.S. census, which is 13% at this point. So there has to be some movement. And if you're going to increase the representation or increase diversity as a whole, that there have to be more black and brown people in those higher level positions of power and fewer white people by converse. And so the first thing we have to do is just confront that and say, yes, this is the reality. This is what is going to happen. This is what it's going to look like. And there's going to be resistance and pushback, but we're going to do it because it's part of our core value system as a firm, as an industry, as a society, you know, whoever is making that individual or shared commitment. Um, And then you have to start looking at the barriers to advancement Um, particularly understanding turnover. So why is it that, you know, when David Thomas and Jack Gabarro's book um, was published, Breaking Through, 
the making of minority executives. It came out in 1999, right? So 20 years ago. And they found this pattern where the minority minorities were more likely to plateau in mid-levels of their career, whereas their white counterparts were more, more likely to advance to the senior executive levels or the C-suite. Um, and so they talked about how different people got differential developmental opportunities. Um, are you giving the right kind of stretch opportunities, high visibility opportunities, growth opportunities, so people can test their metal and show what they're made of um, and you know, gain more of that exposure and consideration for the senior levels? You know, or do you tend to delegate those kinds of opportunities to the typical cast of characters? You know, the ones who remind the current CEOs of their former selves, right? I'm going to pick the person who reminds me of a younger me because I feel like I know how they think and I can trust that they'll be able to pick this up and grow and develop. But the brown, brown skinned woman over there, I'm not sure. I don't really know what it's like to walk in her skin. I don't know what it's like to be in her head. So uh, maybe we'll have to get to know each other a little bit better. She'll have to have a little more opportunity to prove herself before she advances. You know, those are the kind of practices that we have to systematically disrupt. You have to be really intentional about giving the developmental opportunities equally. And some, in some instances, uh, if you've got to choose one or the other and they're on, on parity in terms of their qualifications, or they both bring interesting things to the table. Let me put it that way, Bill. Um, they both bring interesting things to the table that you factor race into the to the to the equation as well and make a difference that helps to advance the racial diversity of your senior leadership. And then that last piece about turnover was important too. the turnover is um, looking at what why where attrition happens, why people leave, who's managed out, what kind of data did they get? Was it where their performance feedback uh, was it? too subjective and therefore bias might, might have entered in. That often happens with black employees. Or did they leave because they were disenchanted with the culture or with the lack of opportunities for growth and development and advancement in the firm because they felt they were plateaued there and they, they felt the like only way that they could advance in their career was to make a lateral move someplace else. But firms don't generally conduct exit interviews and they don't ask pointed questions about race, even during those exit interviews. So we're not really getting the full picture that would then allow us to you know, adjust accordingly. So Laura, thank you so much for these best practices. And I highly recommend uh, those that want to take it a step forward uh, personally to look up Laura and her co-authors Harvard Business Review articles, including one that was very recently published uh, that outlined more here. Laura, I want to uh, kind of end on a, a, maybe something that combines the the overall contextual political social environment that we're in right now with where we've spent the second half of this podcast, which has been more you know practices that individual managers uh, and leaders can make. How do those two things connect, and how can we best accomplish the the goals in be it business goals or be it in uh, private sector companies to build this uh, inclusive environment that really uh, overcomes the systemic issues that uh, Black Americans and other minorities ha have faced uh, in, in a context that's often going to be polarized? Yeah, so that polarization can be really challenging and dangerous, Bill, um, because it can lead to dangerous and violent conflict. Um, and we certainly wouldn't advocate that. Um, but there's also a, a piece of the equation here that requires individuals to, um, to take a stand and not straddle the fence on these issues. Uh, some of the work that we've been doing and the way that we've been approaching this work around diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, when we just put everything together under the umbrella from um, cognitive diversity, diversity of thought, um, to, you know, a, a range of political beliefs as well as sociodemographic um, groups and categories all blended together. Uh, that, you know, that definitely reflects all of the var variety within our society. 
Uh, but it also kind of lets us off the hook because everybody can say, oh, yeah, I'm the outsider. I'm the one who's being marginalized. I'm the one who's being mistreated here. And we take our eye off of the structural inequality that positions certain people, you know, with the, you know, less hospitable, <laughs> much less safe environment in their workplaces or or in the streets. So we can't really straddle the fence in a, you know, one size fits all welcome wagon kind of approach to these conversations if we really want to move forward in countering racism head on. Uh, we have to take a stand and that's what many leaders are doing is taking a stand. Many are saying this is the first time they've ever taken such a stand, but they're doing it and saying, um, we will not tolerate this kind of injustice. It goes against our fundamental belief of who we are as an organization and who we wish to be. And we're ready to make the tough decisions that we have to make in order to eradicate racism in all of its forms. Uh, maybe that is a way of polarizing people. Some may see it as divisive, but silence has not been the solution, right? Trying to sweep it under the rug has, it, has not done anything but further exacerbate the inequalities that we're talking about right now. And in being silent, things have only gotten worse. So I think in being vocal and trying to confront it head on, head on, we have more of a chance of coming together in a unified voice than we would otherwise. Uh, but it's going to require people to, to take a stand. And it, you can't really straddle the fence too much on this one. Laura, thank you for your just very important and also at times very challenging thoughts today about where race uh, is in the workplace uh, in the in the United States and what we can do both as individual leaders, but also as society to take that next step. We appreciate you joining uh, on the podcast. I appreciate you having me, Bill. Thank you for listening to this special episode of the Managing the Future of Work podcast. To find out more information about our project on the future of work and for more information on the coronavirus's impact, visit our website at hbs.edu forward slash managing the future of work and sign up for our newsletter.